begin this Easter season, that's where we're going to turn our hearts and our minds toward, and looking at what the gospel is. Um, and it is, it is so important to have in our minds, when we start to think about what the gospel is, we have to think about why we need the gospel. And the law has shown us that we need a, go- we need a good news message. But then even the law is another one of those Christianese words. Um, if you went to someone who's never been to church before, they've never heard any of these things, they're not familiar with the Old Testament, they're not familiar with the, the, the Mosaic law, and you say the law, they may think, what are these, what does this mean? Are you referring to speed limits? Are you referring to, what are you, what are you talking about, the law? Really, is God going to punish me eternally for going five miles an hour over? Is that what you mean to tell me, good sir? But that's not really what we're talking about, is it? So we have to back up and we have to, we have to talk a little bit more about what it means to be in need of a Savior because we have broken the law of God. But the beauty is, and the central message of the gospel, is that we have a Savior. And even though every one of us is born into sickness and death, there stands ready a great physician, a great physician who is not only able but willing to save us. And, and I want you to picture, as we get going this morning, I want you to picture somebody who is, who is absolutely in poverty. And when they come to somebody else and ask for help, what do they do? Do they say, I've got most of what I need, I just need a little more, will you help me? That's not what they say, is it? They actually appeal to the greatness of their poverty when they're asking for help. They say, I am so destitute, I am so poor, I am so in need. And they appeal to that, they build that case up in requesting assistance. And it is no different when we come to Christ that we also express the same need. Just as the man or woman in deep poverty appeals to the greatness of their poverty, we appeal to the greatness of our sin and the greatness of our need for a Savior when we come and ask for mercy. So I want you to have that in your heart and in your mind this morning. And it is such a fitting thing to think about that we are in need of the Savior And we will talk a little bit more next week when we actually look at the atonement and what does it mean for for Christ to die and and, and penal substitution. It doesn't seem relevant today. It seems so weird to think that someone had to come and die for me. Isn't there another way? And you know, God's so smart. Why couldn't he come up with another way? And we'll talk about that next week. But this week we'll lay the groundwork for what the gospel is who Jesus is, and and, and how we can benefit from it. So I want you to have also in your mind this morning, this will be kind of the heart of this whole message. Um, Rather than disqualifying us, our godliness, our ungodliness is the exact thing that qualifies us to be Christ's subjects, to be his patients whom he intends to heal. You you know, sometimes we think of we got to clean ourselves up to come to Christ, but what the premise is wrong, what actually qualifies us for us to be Christ's patience is our ungodliness. The very thing is that we are ungodly, and he came to save those who are ungodly. So the major doctrine I want to defend this morning, and it'll be up on the screen, is that Christ, the great physician, stands ready to heal the greatest sinner who would come to him. Christ, the great physician, stands ready to heal the greatest sinner who would come to him. And I love what D.A. Carson says. He says, in eternal terms, what you must have is God looking at you favorably. And so I want to unpack this in light of the scripture that we've already read this morning of Matthew 9, 12, and 13, where Jesus says that he came 
to call sinners. But I also want us to take a look at Romans. And so here, if you will, just turn to Romans 3. And we will stand and read that in just a second as well. But here's the three stops I want to make this morning. I want to take a look at sickness and sin. I want to take a look at who Jesus is and why did he come. I want to answer those questions. And then also three, I want to end with this focus of what is the good news. So sickness and sin, who is Jesus and why did he come? And third, what is this good news? So if you will, I know it's it's a little bit awkward. We're going to stand again. But I want to read Romans 3, 19 through 30. I believe it's so important to be in the word and to base everything that we say in the word. In in Jesus' words, we're always to look at the scripture. And this morning, I want us to focus on this very important passage in the book of Romans um, that really paints this picture of what does it mean to be justified through faith. In verse 19, he begins. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that the one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want us to begin and look at this first stop, sickness and sin. I want to unpack this idea for us. And, and, and it is such a critical thing to think of in, in light of, of our cultural narrative. What we, what we see actually in our time is that people are beginning to move more and more towards this idea that inherently man is good. And there's been this shift away from the historic Christian doctrine that man is actually inherently sinful and in need of a savior. Uh, there's been this shift to say that, no, that's not actually true. What's actually true is man is inherently good. And what we have to do is we have to bring that goodness up to the top. So how do we do that? Well, one of the primary ways we can do that is through education. We can educate them into goodness. And, and you see all these people who are savages and they're, they're sinful people. Why? Because they just don't know any better. But if we can train them in the way. And so there's actually been lots of things written. One of those is called the Humanist Manifesto. And it literally discredits and discounts anything that we would uh, appeal to the Bible or, or God. And they say no man is capable of saving himself. Then they outline some of the plans, outline some of the plans in which man can save himself. Well, at the root of it is that man is good. And that is absolutely contrary to what we see in Scripture. And so we, we do appeal to the authority of the Scripture. And so we would have a conversation and we would have a debate um, just philosophically. Is man good inherently or is man evil and in need of a Savior? 
That would be a philosophical difference. But here's the point. What does the data show us? The data shows us that man, left to his own devices, is not good. You you can't come up with any example of anyone left to their own devices and say, see what good comes out of that? Do you have to teach your children how to sin? No, they they, they are born experts. They, they They are ready to train others. It isn't, it isn't that they need a little assistance in it. It's they are experts. They've got this thing dialed. And you can look at them and, and, and pick up some tips. And, and, and so what we have to look at is that there may be a philosophical difference. We appeal to the authority of Scripture, which says man is inherently fallen. His nature, every bit of him has, has been, been corrupted by the fall. And even his heart is, is so, so wicked that he can't see it. He can't see how sick he is. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says that a man who is getting better recognizes his sickness. But a man who is getting worse thinks he's better already. Isn't that true? When we think we've accomplished it, when we think that there's no more work left to do, usually that's a sign of something gone wrong. In the Christian life, what we, what we experience is that God delivers us from sins, and we think, well, that's the big sin today, um, and if I could just nail this one down, if I could get victory in this, everything would be smooth sailing from here. Have you ever thought that? I know I've looked at certain sins in my life and say, if I could just whip that one, whew, everything would be good from here on out. Well, what happens? God gives you victory in that one, and then what happens? The next tallest man in the room stands up, right? It's like Aristotle's tallest man in the room. Take the tallest man out of the room. Who's the next tallest man in the room? What happens is as we begin to become more and more like Jesus Christ, the more and more apparent our shortcomings are. The more and more we we become dissatisfied with our relative righteousness. Practically speaking, positionally, there is no greater righteousness to be had. We are perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. But there is a practical side in which we can have more holiness. We can grow in faith. We can grow in peace. We can grow in kindness. We can grow in the fruit of the Spirit, right? And we can see gradual growth in that, and we pray for that. And what is interesting is that we, even though while we become less and less of sinners, so to speak, because our hearts and our desires are changed and we want more and more to do the will of God and we enjoy sin less and less, as that happens, we still will become more and more dissatisfied with the progress we've made. Why? Because anything that remains still separates us in fellowship from the Lord. And even the small things we used to look at and say, those are no big deal, those are actually very serious things because anything left on the table is still offensive to the Lord. But it, doesn't, it isn't as if he hasn't forgiven us. He has forgiven us. But there still must be a war waged against these things. Maybe once it was some big, nasty thing, and now it's only your pride. Well, I think that's a pretty big thing, isn't it? C.S. Lewis, not to quote him too much, but he says he thinks that the root of all sin is pride. That we say to God, in this you have no part. In this I know better than you do. For me, it'll go different. I know those other, those other blokes, they messed it up. But I see the path. And for me, this time, it will be different. And Adam and Eve in the garden, that's exactly what they said. They said, you know what? I know what God has said, but I don't believe him. As for me, it'll be different. And it's the analogy as, as a little boy raises his hand to get his allowance from his father. Once he gets that allowance, he looks to his father and says, you have no part in this. 
And so we have to realize that as we become more and more purified, the more and more we will become less satisfied with even the progress we've already made. And that's not to say that we don't have peace and contentment in, 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 in the work that God's done. That is not the point. The point is God will continue to draw us. He will never let us sit wherever we are content in saying, no more, Lord, I desire no more holiness. You can stop here. I'm perfected. That's the heart in which we are speaking against. But here's the heart of the condition, is that everyone has fallen into sin. Everyone is born into sin. And even if a man does what is right, we have to ask the question, who says? Who says this is right? And do you know what society is saying? Society is saying that what's right and wrong is a matter of personal opinion. It's subjective. It's like, do you like chocolate or do you like vanilla? There is no objective moral authority. There is no objective right and wrong. It's all about preferences. But the problem is, is that doesn't actually work out in reality because as soon as you cut in line in front of somebody who believes that, they become very much objective once again, don't they? It isn't simply that, that I don't like that. It's like, no, that's, you're wrong. You've offended me. Well, how, how, how is your opinion of what's right or wrong any better than my opinion of what's right and wrong? We need a judge to settle this, right? But here's the thing is even if we feel... Even if we feel we get it right, let's just say, let's just say that, that a man does what is right. What is right? Is it just because whatever he feels is right? Because he's not convicted about it? I can do some things and, and, and maybe my heart is hard in that moment and I don't feel any conviction. Is that the test? No, because there's lots of people who have done horrible things and not felt guilty about it. That isn't the test, is it? Is there such a thing as a sociopath? Yes. Those are the people who say, I cannot empathize with anyone else in the world, and whatever I want is king. And I will use and abuse anyone I need to to get my way. Now, when we look at that person and we say, well, it seems right to them, it's clear to us that it isn't in them which is decided. It has to be from without. So a man may do what is right in his own eyes, but the scripture says that isn't the test. You also may say a man does what is right in his culture's eyes. Well, can a culture become evil? Yes. Haven't we seen it throughout history, cultures becoming evil? We would look at Nazi Germany and say, as a culture, you were, you were evil. In the, in, and at the trials in Nuremberg, when they stood there, they said, we were doing what was right in the light of our culture. We were doing what we were told. It was right. It was acceptable. And at the trial in Nuremberg, they said, that's not the case, that, 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 that there is a law above the law. Yeah, maybe that was permissible, maybe that was legal in your culture to murder all these people and to round up people who disagreed with you and, and kill them by the millions. Sure, maybe your culture decided that was legal, but there was a law above the law. And here we stand, every one of us is found in sickness and sin because we have violated the law of God. There is a law above the law. A man may say, I am a law unto myself, and that doesn't work. A culture may say, we are a law unto ourselves, and that doesn't work. There has to be a law above the law. And that's what we appeal to as we say that there is an objective lawgiver. And everything else flows from him. What is right is not right because we've voted on it. What is right is what is right because it is according to his nature. When you lie, you go against the nature of God in whom's nature you are made. Does that make sense? 
we have to look at this and say that just because a man may feel justified in what he does, it does not mean he stands before God justified. And the whole point, as D.A. Carson said in eternal terms, what you must have is God looking at you favorably. God is not saying, well, as long as it makes sense to you, I'm cool with it. God isn't saying, well, as long as there's enough of you that agreed upon it and built a culture around it, I'm fine with that. That makes sense. That isn't at all what God is doing. God is looking and he's saying, be holy for I am holy. The standard is him. So every one of us can look and say, let's compare to who? To God and his perfect righteousness. And therefore we find ourselves in need of a savior. But here's the gospel. As Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Matthew 9, 12. But do you see this here in 19, Romans 3, 19? It says, now we know that whatever the law speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Literally saying there's no one out here who can speak. You're done. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And we are thankful for the law. Because you know the law is actually um, a form of grace. I know that sounds weird. But, but if, if, if there's some expectations that are put on you and you don't know about them and then you fail, what is, it, what is your cry going to be? No one told me. Right? But what is God saying right here? He's saying that it isn't a mystery. It isn't a mystery. No one can say, well, I didn't know. Everyone is going to be held accountable to God. He said, for the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that grace comes through that when we see what is wrong, it's clear to us. We don't have to look at this and say, hmm, I wonder. Now, in our hardness of heart, it may not be as clear as we would like it to be. We are able to deceive ourselves. We are able to walk in sin and feel like we're okay. And that's why David said, Lord, search my heart and find any offensive way in me. He also said in Psalm 19, he says, deliver me from, from presumptuous sin and also hidden sins. The sins I don't even know about. But the point is, is the law of God has made it clear. And the knowledge of sin comes through the law of God. But check this out, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And I love that. I mean, that is the heart of the gospel. But we have to ask, have we all sinned? Yes. Right there, Romans 3.23, he says, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so we'll have to ask this question, and I think it's a very, a very relevant question for every one of us to ask. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your shame? And this is a question that every person in the world has to respond to because every one of us can look at some point in our life in which we are ashamed of. We can look and see where we are guilty. What do you do with it? Do you just pack it away and say, I'm not going to think about that? Do you deny it? Do you say, no, it really isn't as bad as it looks. I can explain this. What do you do with it? Every person has guilt and shame in their life. Every single person. What do you do with it? 
That's the point of the gospel. I love what Matthew Henry says. Let us examine whether we have found our sickness and have learned to follow the direction of our great physician. What we have to do is first recognize that we are sick, that we are dead in our sin, that we have guilt and we have shame and we can't get rid of it. Have you ever, have you ever fallen into sin and then you just can't wait for the next day to come? Because you feel like some way that time will help separate you from that. And you say, man, I can't wait till a year has passed as if that gains you some distance. I've been there. I've, I've literally said, I can't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow's a new day. But do you know, even though that gives us a little comfort, in God's economy, he's atemporal, means he, is, he transcends space, time, and matter. He's outside of time, so to speak. He's not waiting for tomorrow. So we may gain some distance from our sin in time, but it doesn't look any different to him. There's no absolving through time. Even though we may harden our hearts or even maybe we grow desensitized, you know, you break your leg, you break a bone, you smash your finger, and it hurts really bad in the moment, but as time passes, what happens? Less and less. Sometimes you do that with sin. The first time you did it, you're like, I cannot believe this. Who am I becoming? And then the next time, if you don't confess, if you don't wrestle with it, it's easier and easier and easier. But even if you recognize the greatness of it and you wish to distance yourself from it, hoping that time will save you, time won't save you. Because God is not out there looking, waiting for tomorrow to come. He sees it all laid before him. There's nothing hidden. His memory doesn't grow dull over time, even as ours may. So what do you do with that? You're like, thanks, great. That used to give me some comfort. Now what? We have to look at Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus and why did he come? Do you know this is one of the most important questions any person on this earth could ever ask? Who is Jesus? Do you know that lots of people want a piece of Jesus? The Muslims want a piece of Jesus. Mormons want a piece of Jesus. All sorts of people want pieces of Jesus. But the problem comes in when we answer the question, who is Jesus? And so we've got to look at this and ask, is Jesus truly the Savior of the world? And upon what authority does he come and die in our place? But I want to put before you a couple of things that I think that Scripture is very clear about. One, that Jesus is God. He is the Redeemer, and he's also the compassionate physician. Do you recognize that if he, if he, if he wasn't the first two, he can't be the third? He can't be the compassionate physician if he is not God, the Redeemer, sent. If he is not God, he is a bystander. He has no part in this. And we've said it before, if you have two people and one's been offended by the other, you've got the one who's been the victim, and here's the one who did the offending. What, what happens? This person needs to forgive this person. And only this person can, can, can take and bear that. But this person has to give the forgiveness. But here's the thing. In this, in this example, you have to look that God is the one who's been offended. No third party can come and show up and say, not a big deal. Just like these two people. A third person can't come up and say, hey, you're making too big a deal of this. Let him off the hook. You would say, what part do you have in this? Rightfully, wouldn't you? You'd say, get out of here. This is between me and them. 
So if Jesus is not God and Jesus is just another man showing up, he is a third party. But the beauty is, is he is God. He is the offended party. So even when we have an image of a judge and you have someone who's guilty of murder and you sometimes say, well, you know what it looks like, the gospel is like this, that the judge looks at this sinner, this person who's guilty and says, I absolve you, you're forgiven. But that's not actually what happened. What would be a more appropriate analogy is if I'm the judge, you're the murderer, you killed my child. Now we're more and more in line. Still not perfect, but it's still, hey, we're getting very personal, aren't we? But not, the, not only that, not oh, will I absolve you, you get out of the way, I'll take your place and kill me for your sin. That's more in line with the gospel analogy, if we could put it in human terms. Only the offended party is able to truly forgive. And that's why they wanted to kill Jesus, when he would heal people and say, your sins are forgiven. They're like, whoa, don't mind you doing some weird stuff and making them better. You go saying that kind of stuff, you're acting like God. And Jesus says, which one's harder, to heal or to forgive? He wasn't lost. You can't forgive unless you're God. The Jew, it wasn't missed on the Jews. Jesus didn't miss it either. And the whole point is that we have to answer this question, who is Jesus? And if he's not God, he's a third party, and he's not a true redeemer, and he can't actually be the compassionate physician who comes to heal. So we have to get that straight. Nearly everyone has an opinion as to Jesus, uh, who Jesus is, right? But I want to go through a couple of things that, that I wrote down that I believe Scripture reveals uh, Jesus as being. Uh, scripture reveals him as being in very nature God. We know that. Yet he's also the tender shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is full of mercy, full of tenderness towards sinners who are broken and enslaved to sin. So Jesus is not only in very nature God, but he came as a humble servant. And, he, and he, he identifies himself as the good shepherd who looks at the sheep who are perishing and he has mercy on them. He has kindness towards them. So this is what we see when we look at Jesus. When we ask the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is in very nature God, but he's also the good shepherd who has the most tender heart and reaches down and picks up his dead and dying sheep and heals them. That is the beauty of who we're talking about here is Jesus Christ in very nature. God does not owe us that. He, he, he can justly sit as the judge who just says, away with them. But that's not what we get in Scripture. When Jesus says this, he says, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Do you get that? That means that we can come to him fully exposed with confidence that we won't be turned away as we plead our case. Just as I said, you picture the, the, the beggar who pleads and appeals to the greatness of his poverty. We come to Jesus Christ laying it all fully vulnerable. You know, some people you can't trust with your whole story. You can't go around and tell everybody everything that you've ever done, can you? And if you think you can, you're very naive. You can't do that. But you know what you can do with Jesus is expose it all. And by the way, he already knows. You're the one lying to yourself if you, if you think he's missing any information. So when you come to Jesus, do not come to him in fear, but come to him saying, great physician, here it all is. Here's all of my junk. I may be dishonest with myself about my junk, but I know you already know. 
And I don't expect you to reject me because of my great need. You are the great physician. And you will accept me even though you see me so blackened in sin, so messed up, so bloodied, so sick. We have to look at Jesus in this life where he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I love this other scripture I want to put up on the screen. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, the saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he goes on to say, of whom I am the foremost, or I am the chief of. Man, do you know the whole point of Jesus coming was not to start a club? with a bunch of people who had it together. He wasn't like, all right, all right, I've been watching, I've been watching. A couple of you guys are real messed up. Ah. All right, who's all the good guys? Who's, who's, who's had a really good heritage, perfect pa- family, never messed up anywhere, went to all these private schools, uh, you know, voted the right way every time. Come on, we'll start a club, we'll change the world. What he said was all those people who think they got it all right, he's like, you guys missed it? And you think you don't need me, you need me worse, but here's what I'm about. I'm about coming to those who are broken. I'm coming to those who are sick, who literally are, 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 are sheep, helpless. And Jesus says, those are the ones I will not cast out. He says, I came to call sinners. And Paul says, Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And I love what Calvin says. Calvin rightly explains this. I want to read this to you. This is why Christ came. He came to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and the condemned, to wash those who are polluted and full of uncleanness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were diseased by disgusting vices. I want to put this on the screen. If we consider that this was his office and at the end of his coming, if we remember that this was the reason why he took upon our flesh why he shed his blood, why he offered the sacrifice of his death, why he descended to hell, we will never think it strange that he should gather to salvation those who have been the worst of men and who have been covered with a mass of crimes. Do you get that? If Jesus' chief end is to save sinners, to call the sinners not the righteous, then it shouldn't surprise us that the people he welcomes are the most messed up people in the world. If you don't see that as true, you are missing the gospel. And you may have some self-righteousness you got to deal with. Because if you don't see yourself as one of those people, you're in trouble. A right view is we look at ourselves and we say, man, I tried and I failed. And every time I try, I fail. And if it wasn't for your power, God, I would do nothing but fail. And the good that I do do is only because of what you're doing through me. Giving me a new heart, taking the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Giving me the desires for righteousness and a love for God and from my love for you, God. That is what leads me to want to live a holy life. Not because I think I'm going to earn favor with you. Not because I'm going to put you in my debt and see you owe me something. You look at it and you say, I am messed up, broken, the worst of men and covered by a mass of crimes. And I'm broke. No way I can pay you back. And so I lay it all out and I come to you. So who is Jesus? He is God. He is the Redeemer. And he's the true compassionate physician. Christ is the great physician ready to heal the greatest of sinners if they will come to him. 
And remember, I started this with this idea that rather than disqualify us, our ungodliness is the exact thing that qualifies us to be Christ's patience he intends to heal. If you think it was your goodness that earned favor with God, you miss it because he came to save sinners. He didn't come to save you if you're righteous already. He said, not about my business. That's not it. So if you are looking for salvation from Christ, identify as someone who's sick and covered in a mass of crimes. That's the way we approach Jesus Christ, who is tender towards us and says, I know. I want to end with this idea of the good news, the third place I want to stop. Jesus sees your need and you want compassion on you. And I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards. We have a, a sermon reading club, shameless plug, on Tuesday mornings if you want to. 6 o'clock, 6.15, we, we gather, drink coffee, and read old sermons. It's a great time. I love it. This is the first sermon we started with, and it was from Jonathan Edwards. Um, a, a beautiful sermon. It was called The Pardon for the Greatest Sinner. He says, if you ever truly come to Christ, you must come to him to make you better. You must come as a patient comes to his physician with his disease and wounds to be cured. Spread out all your wickedness before him and do not plead your goodness, but plead your badness and your necessity on that account and say as a psalmist in this text, not pardon my iniquity for it is not as great as it was, but pardon my iniquity for it is great. Are you afraid to be honest with God about your condition? Are you afraid that he will reject you? Because sometimes that's what we feel. We say, I can't be honest with you because if I'm honest with you, you're going to reject me. There's people like that in your life that that's true. If you're honest with them, if you told them your whole story, they would reject you. They would think, what? But God is not like that. We cannot look at him and say, I have to be afraid to be honest with you about my condition. I'm afraid that you're going to reject me. But I want to give you some hope that we can turn to Christ who knows us fully. And I, and I want you to see your sin, but I want you to see Jesus Christ, your Savior, who is greater. One of the great Puritans said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. So as we close this morning, I want to finish with this rest of quote, the quote from Edwards. And just listen, and I want this to be something that gets inside of you. He says, all their hope of mercy must be from a consideration of what he is. He's speaking of Jesus. What he has done and what he has suffered. That there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved but that of Christ that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that his blood cleanses from all sin, and that he is so worthy that all sinners who are in him may well be pardoned and accepted. I think this is a good summary of the gospel. And as Romans says, that there's no one who will be saved by the law, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Next week we're going to look at what it means to look at Jesus as the propitiation, the true substitute, the true penal substitute. Stand this morning and do business with the Lord. As you close your eyes, and I want this to be in your heart and your mind that Jesus Christ is the great physician who stands ready to heal you. Whatever sins you have in your heart, maybe there's some stuff in your heart that you're thinking, I'm taking this to the grave. There will never be anyone who ever finds out about this because if anyone finds out about this, I will be rejected. Man, you can be honest with God. God is not surprised. And before you were born, he saw everything that you would ever do, whether good or evil. And he didn't send Jesus for the good you've done. He sent Jesus because he knew full well of the evil you would do. And while you were dead in that, he had mercy on you. Father, I pray for this gospel message to get in our hearts and to wreck us. And we will believe the word that says that none will be justified by the law, but we will be justified through our faith in Jesus Christ who was put forward as a propitiation, a pleasing sacrifice for us sinners. And Father, I pray for those who are in this room who have guilt and shame who are afraid to be honest with you, even if they are believers and they've committed sins past their conversion time. That they said, I had, I had trust in Christ, but somehow, some way, I fell into sin. And if I tell anybody about this, they're going to question whether or not I was ever saved. Maybe they're going to keep me from ever serving the church ever again. Father, I pray that you give peace to that person. And let them know that the gospel is for believers. It's not merely a potential for those who have not yet believed, but it is a fact for those who have already believed and who are being saved. So, Father, I pray that you crush our hearts with any fears that we may have in which we think we can't be honest with you and that we are afraid you will reject us. And let us, Lord, rest in the fact that Jesus came to save sinners, that he is tender those who are darkened and covered in a mass of crimes. So Father, I pray that you move this morning. And for those who have not yet put their trust in Christ, I pray that they do so. Not for any other reason, but that they may be reconciled to you. That they won't feel that they have to continue to walk in shame and guilt avoiding you because they fear you and that they feel you reject them. May they recognize the truth that Jesus came to save people just like them. Father, move this morning as we continue to worship 
question whether or not we believe the gospel. And if we are not believing the gospel, Father, let us do work with you right now. Whether that's if we are believers or not believers, may we do business with you, believing in your gospel message. invite you to, to do that, to pray to the Lord. If you need to come down here and talk, that's fine. We'll be available after the service as well. But don't leave this morning without having an understanding that God loves you, that he sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners.